This episode of EMS One Stop is brought to you by Lexapol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. Hello and welcome to another edition. I'm your regular host, Rob Lawrence, and this edition is both an audio and a video edition. So if you're listening, good morning. And if you're watching, hello. So uh, the aim of today's podcast is to talk about the recently published Patient Care Report Data Quick Guide, which was authored by our good friends at Paige Wolfberg and Worth in conjunction with NEMSIS, National EMS Information Systems. And to talk to this today, I have uh, two of my friends who are on from PWW. That's Ryan Stark and Steve Johnson. And uh, for those that don't know Steve Johnson, he goes by Stojo. So that's what I'm going to call him. So gentlemen, welcome and thank you for joining me. Thank you. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so a lot, Rob. Good to be with you. Yeah, let's let's do a little. Ba- I love a good backstory. So, uh, Ryan, uh, you're a partner in PWW, and it's not uh, PWW and Stark. So, uh, give it, give us, give us your backstory. <laughs> so, so, the backstory of the firm. The firm actually originated by uh, three gentlemen who we affectionately refer to as the Three Amigos. It was uh, Doug Wolfberg, Steve Worth, and Jim Page, uh, the late Jim Page. Firm was founded uh, back in 2000 by those three gentlemen, and all of them have backgrounds as practitioners in the field, many of them in the administrative realm, and had been involved in EMS for well over 20 years prior to founding um, our law firm. And all our our law firm has a unique distinction in being pretty much the only nationwide EMS law firm that exclusively practices in this realm. So we exclusively represent EMS agencies and those other uh, types of agencies who touch on the industry, such as, you know, revenue cycle management partners, you know, vendors, et cetera. So we do a lot of work in this realm. And part of what we do, too, is help with compliance with day to day. So things like HIPAA, OSHA, you know, all of those four letter and three letter acronyms that you have to come into compliance with. That's what our firm does. So those are the three founding members. And that name has endured and, and will continue to endure. Great. You mentioned compliance. And of course, that's where I professionally deal with Stojo a lot. So Stojo, give us the backstory and introduce yourself and what do you do within PWW? Sure. Uh, My background, I started out as an EMT on the street, was uh, director of an ambulance service for several years, went to work for one of the uh, major EMS software companies, was there for quite a while, was uh, director of billing services for uh, uh, National Billing Service that does billing for ambulance services at Outsource, uh, then joined up with the team at PWW, uh, where I'm currently Director of Reimbursement Consulting. Wonderful. So let's get into the sort of meat of the discussion. So Paige Wolfberg and Worth was tasked by the National EMS Information System, NEMSIS, Technical Assistance Centre, so NEMSIS TAC, lots of acronyms already, to research frequently asked questions related to data in EMS patient care reports. So you analyze these questions and uh, obviously under applicable laws and guidance and developed general answers and best practices, which is contained in a new publication, Patient Care Report Data Quick Guide, FAQs on owning, amending, retaining, and sharing um, patient care report data. So we all do this as part of our jobs. You're taught from day one in your new entry, in your new employee orientation. If it wasn't written down, it didn't happen. And it should be second nature. 
but there's a lot of FAQs. Uh, so why do you think we don't understand um, PCRs? Well, I'll, I'll let you start, uh, Stojo. I'll, I'll let you tackle that, and I'll dovetail off of what you say. Great. Sure. Okay. Um, I think that, you know, us old guys, us dinosaurs, go back to the day when, I mean, I honestly, when I started, our PCR was a 3 by 5 index card. And I think there's still too much of us old guys uh, habits around that uh, we frequently don't understand that the world has changed and what used to be okay is not okay. And um, the audit environment that we're living in has incredible requirements. And I think that too often uh, we as humans fall back to our uh, path of least resistance and um, you know, what the, the least I can do and get by with it, that's what I'm going to do. And Unfortunately, we see that. We also don't like making mistakes. And so uh, in EMS, we uh, sometimes I think we don't document completely because somebody's going to challenge what I document. And that also can leave us in a bad spot. Um, and that's also one of the reasons I know one of the FAQs uh, was, you know, can I just unlock it and change it instead of writing addendums and so on? This gets into that. And no, there are there are rules about how things have to be done, and the rules have evolved, and we haven't all evolved with it. And as we drill into this, uh, Stojo, we'll we'll get into some of those those questions. Um, but of course, again, I, I go back to my new entry orientation, new employee orientation. I'm sitting in the classroom. I'm taught how to fill this in, but there's a life cycle. There is actually a circle of life for an EPCR record document. Um, so who wants to take me through the the soup to nuts, literally, of, of uh, electronic patient care reporting and the content that it's contained within it? Sure, I'll start off, and uh, Stoja can fill in any, any gaps here. So, you know, of course, we start this whole life cycle, and that's a really important thing. One of the things behind, um, you know, the importance of documentation is it doesn't live in a vacuum. You know, we are in a day and age where this record is going to follow the patient for their lifetime. So in fact, you may have a re rehabilitative facility that needs to consult the medical record to determine the mechanism of injury at the time in which the, you know, the injury occurred. And the only person that can tell us that is the EMS practitioner. So long gone are the days where we could just give you a quick ticket, pass along that information to the receiving facility. Now we're marrying up records and electronic health exchanges and, and other mechanisms. So really the genesis of all this, you know, starts with the original call intake, how that call came in either to, you know, the MS agency, the dispatch center, the PSAP, whatever entity that is. And then they generate information that gets pushed out to what we call, you know, the EPCR application that most folks are using. There's still some folks that are still on paper records that will, you know, manually put that information. But a lot of times that gets dumped into our EPCR application. And that really sets the tone for, you know, where this call is going and sort of the acuity at which we have to dispatch those crew members. And then we get on scene and that's where input starts, you know, from our crew members. And in fact, even prior to scene, we're already inputting data into the EPCR application via the, you know, whatever dispatch is putting in there. And then we get on scene, we do, you know, of course, our scene size up, our assessment. And that's where the EMS practitioner really has the ability to shine. They're the only individuals that get to see the individual at or close to the time of the acute event. So it's really important that they tell the other folks in this life cycle, if you will, what it looked like, because what, what's going to happen after they conduct you know, their documentation, that'll get passed along to the receiving facility, either electronically um, by paper or a verbal will be given to the receiving facility so that they know 
how to triage the patient and appropriately treat the patient. And then it goes on through the billing end. And these folks, like I said, on the back end, and it, sometimes it goes through QAQI, and I'll, I'll let Stojo pick up here um, after um, EMS practitioner input. But the important part is to, to stress the EMS practitioners, look, all of these folks along the continuum of care from the receiving facility up through billers and everybody subsequent, they're never going to see the patient. So that's why it's so critically important that we get that information. So I'll let Stojo talk about sort of the quality assessment and, you know, billing part of it and then in subsequent stages of documentation. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. And one thing that I think it's important to say up front is that uh, we have an electronic database that we're collecting data in, and it has two very distinct and sometimes um, not very well, uh, one uh, being good with the other, I guess. What I'm talking about here is we've got uh, a patient care report that we have to put out that, that addresses the medical side of the patient care. And so from this electronic health record that we start, we have to create a patient care report. We also have uh, mandates for NEMSIS data collection and uh, our own state and local data collection. And those uh, aspects have... Um, requirements as far as field names and answers and so on. And, and I think that we have to keep in mind that one does not equal the other, and we have to meet both needs. Um, we've got to have a great patient care report at the end of the day. We've also got to meet our data collection needs. And so um, through the from the practitioner side, um, they're actually documenting for two totally different outcomes. And I think sometimes we, we're not keeping that in mind that, yes, we have to answer all the data collection questions, but that's not the be-all, end-all for a patient care report. I also have to have a very high-quality patient care report when I'm done because that data is going to flow from those uh, practitioners uh, through your uh, electronic data collection system to uh, both the uh, operations side of your organization as well as the billing side. Rob, you had mentioned uh, if it isn't written, it didn't happen. And we've said for a long time that the billing corollary to that is if it didn't happen, you can't bill for it. Right. And, <clears throat> and, and more importantly, you can't be fairly reimbursed for that care that you provided. And so it's very important that we get both the uh, data collection side of it and what's needed by CMS and other payers in order to be appropriately reimbursed. I was just going to cut in, actually, and, and we, you mentioned NEMSIS data. And just so people realize that this is aggregating up to NEMSIS, and so they'll, they have a yearly average of over 50 million records in the NEMSIS database and the NEMSIS data set. And so if you're a researcher out there and you want to work out what's happening in the EMS land, then you can actually apply for a NEMSIS research license to get access, obviously de-identified, but to get access to that data set in order to, to conduct some really cool research. And so, you know, go and have a look at Nemesis and we'll put the link in the show notes because that there is, you know, we sometimes forget about the fact that there is this data is being aggregated somewhere and actually you can get access to it. Um, also, just go and Google everyone out there, um, Nemesis, Nemesis EMS by the numbers because every week they produce a set of charts and a set of data that is publicly public-facing, freely available, it talks about you know the the trends of some of the bigger items that we look at in EMS, and I personally use this for briefing in many ways, whether it's talking to organisations or indeed 
briefing elected officials as to the the themes of EMS. So that's my nemesis plug, and uh, I guess I <laughs> had to do that. Uh, but the, the well, no, the, that's that's a great point, Rob. Yeah, they, they have fantastic data available, and I mean, I you know sometimes because of where I'm at, it, it I tend to be thought of as focusing on the billing end of it, but I don't want to discount at all the the value and the the quality of the data that's coming in. It's really important. We got to do both those things very well. Indeed. And, uh, you know, organizations will say, this is the research we've done. And my first question is, what is the sample of the whole? And it may well be a small sample. Well, if you can actually get the license to, to use this stuff, you, you're getting every, you know, tens of millions of records. And therefore, the the, the habits of our, our population at risk or public at large every year. And you can you can see that. Um, so we've discussed, I think, the full life cycle, the circle of life. Uh, I'll, I'll dub in some Elton John music at this point to uh, to illustrate <laughs> that. But, uh, you know, um, you guys are the lawyers. Uh, does the e- EMS agency legally own the PCR data? Who's the owner? Yeah, that was one of the questions that actually drove this. Um, right, okay. what, we were getting, what we were getting at is um, some agency saying, look, this record belongs to us, right? In other words, they saw, thought they had a sole and, you know, unique duty to not only protect the record, but they had the ability to determine whatever happened to that data throughout its life cycle. And that's really not the case when you get into it. I'm sure we have certain duties um, to collect data, of course. You know, we have duties to aggregate that data. We have certain duties to protect it and, you know, maintain the security of it. But we also have duties to pass it along to other parties. In fact, EMS agencies are mandated by law to pass along to receiving facilities, to, you know, intercepting other first responders to whom we relinquish care. We have to pass along that data to them. Once another third party outside of our organization receives that information, really, you know, they can do with it as the law says that they can, you know, use and disclose that information. In other words, we don't have a lot of say in terms of what happens to that data once it gets passed along to a third party. So the sort of the the answer to the question is nobody at the end of the day really owns it. And ownership, by the way, it's not governed by federal law. There's no federal law out there that says you are hereby the owner of this data. Any law that would govern it would be a state law. There are a few state laws out there. In fact, we uh, identified 20 state laws that do speak to ownership. But despite that, once you've passed that data along, you don't always, quote, own and uniquely have the ability to control what happens of that data. Once Nepsis has it, they can do use it to do certain research. Once your state, you know, a Department of Health has that information, they can conduct public health activities and other things that they're permitted to under law to do that. Not only that, the patient always has a right to go and, and request a copy of that record. So, you know, HIPAA sort of brought in this concept of really the data belonging to the patient. So what I'll say is, you know, we're more custodians of the data than we are owners of that data. And we have certain obligations when it's within our custody while we retain it, but other folks do have the ability to do other things with our data that we pass along. Excellent. And, and you mentioned uh, legal re- regulations. This is uh, two folk from PWW, of course. This doesn't constitute legal advice. It doesn't imply attorney-client privilege. I'm just doing uh, you, your guys' job for you. Um, but talking about legal responsibility, right? 
uh, signatures, always a bone of contention, always sometimes a pain for people, always a bane. Um, during the public health emergency, there were certain waivers that we saw. Of course, the PHE is now over. Those have gone. Um, one of your FAQs, actually, I'm quoting from the document now, if I sign the PCR, am I legally responsible for everything? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'll I'll uh, let Sergio um, talk on the back of this too. But one of the things that I get, I teach uh, paramedic students at a local community college, and one of the things Sergio started out with talking about the importance of documentation. You know, we're failing in EMT courses and paramedic courses at stressing the importance of documentation and giving them the tools that they need. One of the things that I do stress to my paramedic students and my PHRN students is the importance of documentation. I expose them to that. And I also talk to them about how everybody should sign the patient care report. Why? Because everybody was a function of providing that particular service. And, you know, we get a lot of pushback. And one of the one of the areas where they push back is they say, well, now I'm legally responsible for everything that happened on that. That's not what the law says. The law says that you're legally responsible for what you did or what you didn't do. You know, when you had a legal duty to do something or to withhold doing something because something was contraindicated. Signing it, all that indicates is that, yeah, I've reviewed it, and to the best of my knowledge, it's true and accurate. Yeah, you do have a duty to at least look over it and not pay lip service, but you, the law will impose liability where it lands. Just because you signed that particular patient care report doesn't mean you're responsible for all the you know, interventions and everything that are outlined in there. It would be whomever performed them or withheld those interventions and they would be responsible within their scope of practice. I'm just going to cut in there because actually a sidebar conversation we could have about, you know, completing accurately the, the EPCR, the public, the, the record, because it is the only contemporaneous record of your encounter with that patient outside these days, of course, of you having a body worn camera and everyone else having an iPhone. And therefore you, it, you have to be prepared to document everything in order possibly to be gripping the the dock or the rail in some degree of court, pick a level, um, to, to defend your actions. And so this is obviously vitally important. And we shouldn't need to be reminding people, but I think from this FAQ, we have to make sure that uh, people are documenting accurately, honestly, um, in, in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead, Sergio. Well, I was going to say two related uh, questions there, Rob. We will sometimes have folks ask, why does the driver have to sign they weren't in the back providing care? And um, then the driver will say, well, if I sign this, am, am I responsible for everything they documented that I don't know? And to those two related questions, I, I would say uh, there's the way I like to describe it is this. Do we all agree if you read the Medicare regulation, it says that um, uh, ambulance benefit is a transportation benefit only, and without a transport, there is no covered service. We all agree that's what the manual says. So which of the two provided the covered service? Be the driver, one did. And so I think this business about arguing that the driver doesn't need to sign is completely ridiculous, even from that angle. And then I would just go back to what Ryan said. Um, when, when you sign, you are saying that to the best of my knowledge, there are no inaccuracies here. And um, am I, as a driver, signing to all of the details of what was documented by the primary caregiver? No, I'm documenting that that's the person that was in the back. I have absolutely no reason to believe that what's documented here isn't true. 
Great. Thank you for that. And uh, again, we're going to put uh, th this guide and the links to it in the show notes. So make sure that, uh, you know, whether you're the medic in the truck or whether you're the chief in the corner office, you need to pay attention to this stuff because, you know, we, we need to, simple as that. Moving on and sort of breaking down into the guide itself, the second part is amending PCRs. Um, mm. Why should we amend them? <laughs> when well, is, when is there a reason that we should? Yeah, when I, is there a point that we let, should amend them? I'll let um, Stojo handle this. But you know, the one thing that we get, I get it from my paramedic students all the time. They're telling me to change my record. They can't make me amend my record. So um, yeah, you have a duty to amend it. And I'll, I'll let Stojo uh, go into that. Yeah, well, there's uh, two uh, questions there, and and two very good reasons. First of all, uh, why do I have to amend it if it's incomplete? It needs to be complete. If it's inaccurate, it needs to be, it needs to become accurate. Whether that means uh, putting in things that were left out, or we're all human. Do we ever make a mistake and we go back and read it? And whoops, uh, that's not what I meant to say. Well, then that needs to be fixed. And so the the medical record needs to be true and accurate. And so when we find out that it's not, and let me add one more: true, accurate, and complete. <laughs> um, when we find out that it's not, we need to make it that. Um, and then the next piece that comes up is when we start talking about amendments, there's always a discussion about an addendum versus uh, um, I'm just going to use some generic language we hear all the time. Can I just unlock the record and fix it and then relock it? And the answer to that is no, you can't. And, and the why to that is because the rules say so. Uh, Medicare Program Integrity Manual tells us exactly what has to happen in the case of late record entries. And they fully realize that there are from time to time, should be rare, but there are going to be times when there's going to be a need for a late entry. And those are perfectly fine as long as they're done appropriately. But if I start trying to make that look like contemporaneous documentation and not following the rules for late entries, um, I'm falsifying the record at this point, and we don't want to get there either. Yeah, and not only that, I would much rather defend an organization who regularly goes through a quality assurance process whereby they make the provider and hold them responsible for the accuracy and completeness of the record. I'd much rather defend an agency in that position. They say, well, we see a lot of amendments to your records. Yeah, that's because we care about getting it right. That's the mantra of our organization. Exactly. And of course, that's the phrase that pays, isn't it? We're not trying to cover up. We're trying to clarify and explain mm -hmm. and, and be very, very clear. Um, right. So who, sh if I if a record is amended, who do I have to tell? Do I have to tell anybody? Is there a, a chain of, uh, you know, inf information or a chain of responsibility to say I've amended this? Uh, and I'm talking about, you know, maybe the patient or who clearly has hopefully signed the document in the first place. Um, do we need to inform them? So we're talking about um, if we do end up amending the record, it all depends on in at what stage we amend that record. You know, if we went through, you know, through QA and we catch it before it's billed or we take any other action in that, probably nobody else. But let's say later on, you know, we bill something and uh, lo and behold, it comes back and, it, you know, there's a denial from the patient's insurer. And, you know, the patient is wondering why it was denied. And they come back to the agency and they said, well, you know, my insurer said that you didn't do anything for me, but I know that you gave me oxygen in the back of the ambulance. And so we now go back to the crew members and we say, hey, look, you know, here's the condition. Um, looks like you probably would have pursuant to protocol applied the oxygen. 
if the crew indeed does remember applying the O2, you know, because it would have been indicated under the circumstance and uh, confirmed that that was the case in that circumstance, we would have a subsequent duty, you know, to let the patient know that we amended it. We would also, um, if that were to render that claim now billable under that patient's insurance, we would, you know, rebill that with the correct information. We'd also provide a copy of that amended record to the receiving facility and the state repository to whom we provided it to. Because like I said, all of those things are interconnected with one another. And it's important that all of the other agencies receive, you know, up-to-date and accurate information whenever that amendment is, is, is made. You mentioned the word state, and obviously we're going to turn, you know, your your record turns into state data and is submitted to the state. So if they're doing any kind of QA process or QI process, shall I say, can they authorize or instruct you to amend records as well if they pick something up? Yeah, that was one of the things that we got into, one of the FAQs. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, a state could go back and if they see a data element, a critical data element that might have been missing, they can request that the agency go back and review that and determine whether or not it was improperly omitted. Now, anytime with an amendment, and, and we stress this several times in the guide, it always needs to be confirmed. So, and, you know, when it comes to clinical information, it's always going to be the clinician that wrote that report. You know, there are going to be times where maybe the lead clinician is no longer available. They left the service or something like that. We might go to a partner in that circumstance. But as a general rule of thumb, anytime it's clinical information, the only people that are going to amend that record are the original author and the clinician who wrote that information. And whenever we go back to somebody and ask them to do an amendment and they say, I honestly don't remember, guess what? We're not going to ask somebody to make something up or to assume facts that are not in record. We're going to say, if you remember it, you know, we can make that amendment, but we're not going to make you, you know, otherwise lie or, you know, try to cover something up. Great. Yeah, and um, to your initial question too, Rob, I would say that to some extent, who do I have to share it with? Well, who's already seen it? Because yeah. when I think of the, the patient care report, our patients don't usually see that. And so if it's, you know, unless they had requested a copy of the record and requested a change, if we have to make some uh, addition clinically so that we can update our records with the hospital who we got gave a copy of. Do we have to let the patient know that, by the way, we changed this? No. Um, you've got to right. let the people know downstream that have already seen it that uh, we'll be using it for something in, in their care. Um, whoever has seen it before should be made aware of the update, I would say. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and I think in the circumstances that I presented, it was because the patient had initiated the request. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Great. Before I move on to the next section, don't forget, everybody, that uh, if you like what you hear, please take a second to rate and review us on the platform that you're listening to us on. Also, if you're on a platform such as Apple Podcasts, in the top right-hand corner of your phone, there's a little plus sign. If you hit that plus sign, it means you're subscribing to uh, EMS One Stop. And what that means is that every time a new episode is published, you get notified. And so we'd love to be able to notify you that uh, it's coming along. Also, you can catch us not only on Apple Podcasts, but on many, many other platforms. And so just look up uh, EMS One Stop. And there we are. And there my guests are as well. So moving on, and of course, I'm talking to Ryan Stark and Steve Johnson, aka Stojo from Paige Wolfberg and Worth. <laughs> Retention of PCRs. Uh, what are the rules and what are the best practices about how long you keep these documents for? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with the rules and then I'll let Stojo sort of give our spiel on best practices. Thank you. Um, 
When it comes to the rules, uh, there really is no federal law that governs retention of medical records. That's um, by and large left up to the states. Now, there are other records like OSHA records and ADA records and things of that nature that federal laws apply to. But when it comes to strict retention of medical records, typically our state laws govern that. And state laws vary. Um, a good average is anywhere from seven to 10 years uh, with certain exceptions for people who are minors at the time that we treat them. And the reason for that is if I'm a kid and let's say I'm injured through the, throughout the course of care, if my parents don't sue when I was eight years old, let's say I still have residual problems as a result of that injury, I now have a right once I turn the, at the age of 18 to sue somebody. And that right, you know, it, it's realized when I turn 18, typically I have a two to four year statute of limitations to, fire, to file that uh, claim of action. So that's why we uh, say to keep it for at least that long. So the rules are all over the place. You know, you can consult your state records. At a minimum, that's what you should be complying with. Having said that, we've sort of simplified it in this guide, and we really have a recommended best practice concerning, you know, all medical records, and I'll let Stojo speak to that. Yeah, typically we say, um, with the exception that Ryan already mentioned, for um, those that have not yet reached age of majority, of course, um, 10 years is probably the safest spot to be, and the reason for that is uh, it, when you get into an audit situation, uh, what's farthest back they can go. Typically, 10 years is the answer to that. And in order to support our claims, we need to have that. Um, I, I Another thing that I'm known for saying is, hey, all of these rules that we talk about, when do they really matter? It's the day of the audit, right? That's when the rule matters. And so um, if we look at it through that lens, um, what's worst case scenario in an audit? Um, I wouldn't want to get rid of it any quicker than 10 years, but Honestly, I'll tell you too, today, uh, drive space is cheap. Um, I'm not going to necessarily figure I have to get rid of it at exactly 10 years either. That's an excellent point because this used to come into play where we were literally taking paper records and putting them in back stacks and storage areas. You know, now yeah. we have the capabilities to store Here comes stuff. the on-mountain truck for this week. And yeah, you got it. You got to <laughs> send somebody over to take some a week to come back from, thanks for the assignment. Yeah. Um, but the other thing to remember too is, the longer that you have a, a database like that, especially if it's connected to the internet, there are always a risk of breach. So make sure that you talk to your IT folks and your security folks and say, hey, how can we safeguard this whole repository of information? Or um, can we take offline some of the records that are beyond 10 years now that we can just you know, um, put in a secure location or on a secure server? Indeed, and that's a whole discussion and episode in its own right, both from data security, but also, you know, being hacked and uh, ransomware, etc. And of course, we see some some big hospital systems scripts, certainly in my, my, my end of the world, got held up for that with, you know, massive breaches. And so you have to be very, very careful. Now, it's a sad fact in this day and age now, particularly post-COVID, but reimbursement issues causing agencies to close down, going out of business. Uh, I maintain the media log for the American Ambulance Association, and uh, every couple of weeks we're seeing another closure, and it's sad. But just because they've gone, what about the records? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. Um, you know, just because they're gone, we now have patients now who may need uh, the ability to access those records, get a copy of those records, you know, for a period of time. So there are rules that govern closure, um, merger and acquisitions and other types of transactions. And these are just sort of broad stroke rules, but usually where you go to determine where, the, you know, who becomes the next repository of those 
And you're going to have to at least maintain them for how long your state law says they, they have to stick around. You know, if I'm a patient and years later, you know, I'm filing a lawsuit or something else I need that record for, there has to be a repository that holds that information. So you're going to go to your state, typically Department of Health first and determine what requirements that they have. A lot of times they will even have requirements that you notify patients that, hey, we're going out of business. You have the ability to contact us and get a copy of those records. Now, if we're dealing with a merger or acquisition, a lot of times those records will go to the surviving entity and they will become the new repository of those records. And keep in mind this, HIPAA says that um, protected health information is any information created or received by me. So once I accept you know, that I'm the repository, that information, that's not my PHI. So if that stuff gets breached, that now becomes that organization's breach. So in those types of transactions, um, it goes there. If there is no merger and they're strictly just going out of business, um, you may have to hire a third-party cloud service to securely store those. Sometimes the state Department of Health will have a repository that will hang on to those records, or they try to enlist another agency within your community you know, that people would logically go to for those records. But the point being, you're still going to have to hang on to those records after you got out of business. And by the way, you better securely hang on to those records. They've levied um, fines against organizations whereby they've been out of business for several years and now their information gets, you know, hacked, stolen, whatever in some repository that they put it in. So, yep, we're not only here to scare you, we're also here to inform you. And so, uh, yeah. Talking of uh, informing, I think it's only a matter of time, and some would say before every provider is wearing a body-worn camera, just to you know put their side of the story, shall we say. Obviously, there's retention and storage issues with that as well. What what would they be in sort of, uh, you know, to, to highlight them? Yeah, go ahead, Sturge, if you want to start start that one off. Um, basically, the, the video, yeah, it's going to take a lot more drive space, so space is going to be an issue for sure. Um, but... It, it's very similar to the rest of the records. I mean, the, the rules for the records are kind of the rules for the records. Um, and if uh, PHI is included, you know, uh, Ryan, I think you have done a session on this for the uh, retention of those body-worn cameras and so on, haven't you? Yeah, so speaking to that, um, how long you have to retain them is really a matter of are they considered to be part of the medical record under your state law? So we need to look to the definition of what a medical record is under your state laws. A lot of these state laws were written eons ago when it was just paper records. Right. So it did not include things like body-worn <clears throat> cameras, but I would have your local counsel take a look at that to determine whether or not they become part of the medical record. To the extent that they are part of the medical record, let's say your state law is broad enough to say any information that is you know, garnished or, or, you know, recorded by a provider becomes part of the medical record, you would have the same obligations with respect to the body-worn camera that you did with respect to the EPCR data, you know, in terms of retention and the security of that information, because remember, it's, it's all PHI. So, and it costs a little more too, to keep that behind a, you know, a secure, really secure firewall and have encryption technology protecting all of that video data. Great. And actually, you said eons ago, Ryan, which helps me segue perfectly uh, in back, back to you, Stojo, and uh, transfer. <laughs> you'll see what I did there in a second. So transferring PCR data back in your day, you admitted this. Uh, and I'm talking, I'm looking at counsel here. Uh, he admitted that he used to use index cards back in the day to complete his patient care reporting. Obviously, if we're transferring that information into electronic data, into electronic medium, 
are there rules, regulations, um, concerns with doing that? Well, yeah, there's a whole host of them. Um, as, as you come into uh, an electronic database, it can have rules set up that didn't exist when the paper record was created. And so mm -hmm. I'm trying to enter this paper record into an electronic database now, and it says you can't lock this record until you answer this unanswered question. Well, I don't know the answer to that question because it was never documented eons ago. And so, you know, the real important thing is when you start transferring records from paper to electronic, uh, one of the things that you're going to want to do is understand this is not a human entering uh, a patient evaluation real time today. This is we're entering data from past records. And so we're probably going to have to open up uh, things that we make required fields today can't be required fields because the last thing you want is somebody making something up. It mm -hmm. needs to be an absolute true representation of what that documentation was at the time it was originally created. And so um, one of the risks, like I say, can be something, well, we'll just answer this because they couldn't answer that. And I'm sure that, no. <laughs> um, be very careful when you're bringing paper records into an electronic uh, database that you're not making things up. You're not um, embellishing. It, it says exactly what it said. Excellent. Uh, just FYI, I have uh, Randolph Mantooth on speed dial. So if we need to get Johnny and Roy to come back and make an amendment, <laughs> I think uh, <laughs> we can do that. Um, now, of course, another thing that we aspire to do is to create bi-directional data to have my record going into the hospital, you know, for your community paramedic, paramedic to see what happened to inform, you know, their own treatment decisions. But of course, we're now sharing data uh, into perhaps a hospital information system. It's going across uh, up through a glass ceiling or through a glass wall, et cetera. Um, so that patient care information then that then goes into an HIE, who owns it? Who's responsible? What are, are there any poo traps with doing that? <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's a really uh, loaded question there. There's a lot. It of, was, we only asked that. Uh, when I, so when I upload it to an HIE, um, to that central repository, a lot of times an HIE stands in the role of a business associate. So uh, they would have certain obligations to me under contract. For the protection of that data and the law will generally you know sort of outline who has access to uh, that information and the whole purpose of it and HIPAA actually permits this HIPAA permits the sharing of protected health information for treatment payment and healthcare operations reasons that's very broad and all-encompassing so um, you can create a health information exchange whereby uh, different covered entities or healthcare providers go to that repository to share information that they need the key is, you know, that we have really good audit trails so that we whenever we go back and you're actually required to do this under the security rule because people say, well, how do I know? How do I police this? You know, it just seems like the Wild West. You are required to from time to time go back and, and run audit trails. And when you see aberrant activity, for example, somebody who would have no right to, to look at that record or to see that record, maybe not no right, but no need to, no legitimate business need. And we see a thousand access attempts and it looks like snooping. We're required in those situations to take appropriate action and to sanction individuals and to let them know that every time you touch a record in whatever database it is, you're creating a digital footprint every time that we can go back and access. So, you know, it's, it is a little bit of you know, the Wild West, but we are permitted to do that. And that's really the holy grail. If we ever want to get to true evidence-based medicine, we have to know whether or not we properly identified the STEMI, 
you know, we properly took them to the, you know, the appropriate unit because otherwise we're just pulling at straws and we just administer the intervention at whatever interval, because that's what, that's what we've always done throughout the time. But when we see that outcome data and able to connect with that, that's what really drives better EMS throughout the system. Right. And actually you touched on, you know, the fact that people may have access to a lot of information for possibly nefarious purposes. There's no shortage of stories where you see a medic looking at, you know, the, the ex-girlfriend's records or, you know, from a police perspective, right, the cops looking at the criminal record of, you know, the the the, the chap that's come to take their daughter out, et cetera, right? These are <laughs> massive no-nos. HIP is a federal offence. And uh, we, we had, I remember having an issue where we had, you know, a, a HIPAA issue. And people say, yes, but he's the best supervisor in the world. No, sorry, this is a HIPAA issue and he's going. Thank you. Sure. Goodbye. So remember that uh, you know we are playing with fire here as well. If you if you if you choose to misuse these things, so we've kind of covered the four sections in the guide, which I, again I think is amazingly self-explanatory and needs to be a part of every orientation class going. But classic Rob ending question: Is there anything I've forgotten to ask, or anything you forgot to tell me? We'll, we'll leave that up to the guide, right? If, if uh -huh. there are other. There are a host of issues in there that we really, like we said, we distill from a lot of FAQs. So if it's been asked concerning the data, uh, more than likely uh, we do address it somewhere in there. And it is meant to be very broad reaching. But um, again, Nemesis didn't approach us with any objective and they didn't say we need to come to the conclusion of X concerning these particular questions. We said, we'll just straight research it from um, an objective standpoint and put out what we find so that we have some, you know, solid advice for the folks out there. No, well, thank you for putting it together because when I, when I went through it, as I say, A, it's amazingly uh, an easy read, but B, those are questions that I've certainly, you know, with, in my corner office over the years, people are coming and going, what about this then? Well, <laughs> let me, let me get an answer for you. So it's necessary reading everybody and you need to make sure you're paying attention. Um, before we do go, though, I know that uh, you guys in PWW are always up to something, and you've got, to, I think, your ABC 360 coming up sometime soon. So uh, I'm going to give you a free plug. Off you go. Go ahead, Stojo. Absolutely. If you read this guide and have some questions that you just want to get face-to-face -face with us and ask it, your next opportunity would be June 4th through the 8th in Clearwater Beach, Florida. Um, we've got our ABC 360 conference on the 7th and 8th, our Executive Institute um on the sixth actually uh the live attendance in clearwater for the abc 360 conference only has sold out but for all of the nac programs and the xi uh we do still have availability there if you're interested great thank you for that that was a superb plug and uh so if you're able if you're in in florida <laughs> do do attend that and uh I always enjoy having folk from PWW, uh, Ryan and Steve, uh, Stojo, thank you. Uh, obviously, uh, we've we've done a lot of recording with uh, Steve and Doug as well. And so you're, you're always welcome guests on the EMS One Stop. Uh, finally, how can we follow you guys? Or get in so, touch. Yeah, so you can go to our website, uh, pwwemslaw.com. And uh, right in the bottom right-hand corner, you can plug in your email there and you'll get any and all updates that are coming out. By the way, let me give you a quick foreshadowing here. There are going to be some big HIPAA rules that we suspect are coming out maybe mid-summer. I can't put a, an exact date on it, but uh, you need to be in the know and be prepared for that. So make sure you subscribe to our listserv. Great. Well, thank you all for keeping us, the industry, informed as to changes 
because they come sometimes thick and fast. And uh, also, if you're listening, make sure you go back. And I, I had a discussion with Doug, Doug Wolfberg, about the ending of the public health emergency. And one of the yeah. things, guys, that we determined is because the PHE had been in for about three years, there were people working in organizations that had known nothing but being inside the rules and regulations and conventions of the public health emergency. And so, you know, you, you kind of build up that muscle memory that those habits are either good or bad. And so organizations are challenged with a massive amount of habit breaking because subtle things like signatures, et cetera, have changed, changed overnight and there will be no forgiveness. And uh, one of the things that Doug said to me, and I'm just going to plug that and that stuck, of course, is from a record keeping perspective, Doug recommends you have your time capsule, right? That you preserve all of the rules, all of the regulations, all of the instructions you've had in order that when you mentioned, Stojo, you mentioned when the auditor comes along in 10 years' time, you need to open that time capsule and go, yes, but these were the rules that applied at the time. And so if you haven't done that and listened to that episode, which again, we'll link that into the show notes as well, where I talk to uh, to Doug Wolfberg about the kind of the, the other part of, of record keeping, uh, et cetera. So for the minute, guys, thank you so much for joining me. And uh, hopefully uh, you'll come back and talk to us again soon. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Rob. Okay, so that was uh, Stojo, Steve Johnson, and Ryan Stark from PWW. Uh, as always, you can follow me on Twitter at UKRobL1 or over on LinkedIn, or if you want me to take your exercise for you, follow my hike vlog. I'm coming up to 150 hikes, by the way, guys. If you want to want to watch me struggle up big hills, that's the place to watch that. Uh, but for the minute, uh, this has been EMS One Stop. Uh, thank you to my guests. Until next time, I've been Rob Lawrence. Bye for now.